Welcome to What Have We Learned. I'm Ben Punter. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Ben Punter. Yes, that is my name. On Facebook, we are What Have We Learned. And on Instagram, we are at What Have We Learned pod or one word i know most of you will be listening on spotify uh, if you prefer you, know, you can listen on apple itunes or a cast if one of those is more comfortable for your ears this episode is musician comic and youtuber jay foreman you can find him online he is jay foreman pretty much everywhere and you can find him on twitter and youtube i do highly recommend spending an afternoon over on his youtube page just go watch videos like london unfinished or map men you won't be disappointed uh, you can find him also on his own website details are in the description of this episode in this episode, we talk about comedy and musical influences, Beatles, Simpsons, and Animaniacs, and making silly educational videos for YouTube. This is What Have We Learned with Jay Foreman. Jay Foreman, welcome to What Have We Learned. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm not too bad. I'm not too bad today. So, for those who don't know, can can you explain to people what, what it is that you do? Um, well, what I do, I suppose, career-wise, I guess the reason you've uh, invited me here today, um, I, I'm a comedian and I'm also a YouTuber. Mm-hmm. And um, of those two words, uh, comedian is the one that I feel more comfortable saying because comedian is a proper word, whereas YouTuber, um, that's a newly invented word and I sort of can't help but shudder a bit when I say it because it sounds altogether very made up. But if I'm honest about how I spend my time, I'm one of those. That's that's what I do. Because comedian, also, you know, when someone says, "Oh, I'm a YouTuber," they, you, they not they come across. Someone will respond to them as with a bit of a uh, that. That's your career, is it? Whereas comedian, it's a bit more widely acknowledged as a as a career path as well. Yeah, I think the main difference is if you say YouTuber, it often means people who sort of they vlog about themselves on a daily basis and talk about themselves. Um, whereas comedian, I think, has a little bit, just a, it garners a teeny weeny bit more respect, I think, these days. And so, from from you, making YouTube videos, uh, comedian, and also musician, but also splicing the comedy stand-up and comedy music, which of all, all those would you say is your, your first passion? Oh, well, my first passion in terms of chronology, I guess, has to be the music, because that's where I first started. I was doing gigs on stage where I didn't really acknowledge that I was a comedian. It just so happened that the songs I was singing had silly lyrics, had funny lyrics. And mm. then that very slowly, gradually morphed into closer to stand-up comedy than uh, folk music, I guess. Um, so I guess for that reason, that the first one has to be music, I suppose. But then as for what I put first in priorities, how I how I spend my time nowadays, I, I guess it's making YouTube videos first, followed closely by the gigs that I've missed since this whole lockdown started. Mm. So prior to... Prior to- being a musician what were you doing before what was your background um well before that i was a student um the thing is being a musician was never something that i decided one day i am going to make this my career i'm going to go out into the world and be a musician for a living it was something i did on the side for a bit of fun and i started doing it while i was still a student and while i was still sort of dreaming about getting a proper job as a chartered quantity surveyor or a systems analyst and the 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 music was just going to be a silly hobby on the side but then very slowly gradually um about 10 or so years later, I realized that I never did get that job as a systems analyst. And I suppose, I suppose music is what I do now. So it was only ever supposed to be silly. So who are your musical influences at the beginning? Uh, My biggest musical influence, and it it makes me feel very boring to say this, but I'm a massive, massive Beatles fan and sort of try as I might, I can't really hide my huge Beatle influences on my sleeve. Um, but the reason that feels so boring is because the Beatles have influenced everybody, including pretty much all music that came next. You know, saying that your 
influenced by the Beatles is a bit like saying that you like ice cream or fun. Like, mm. you know, so does everyone. But I am also, I think I, I'm allowed to say it because I'm a massive Beatles geek. Yeah, um, I agree in that when people say, oh, who's your favourite musician? You say Beatles. And there's, a, there's, that, there's an element of... I, you couldn't think of you couldn't think of anyone else at all. It's it's, it's, yeah, like, it's almost like a cop out. Yeah. Like, well, obviously the Beatles, but you know what makes you interesting? Yeah. <laughs> that's what, you also, you have that's to, why it's such a bad thing to say. You also have to prove that you are a Beatles fan rather than just saying, "Oh, oh, I like the Beatles." I so I my Beatles reference is I so I worked at R Price when R Price was around. Oh yeah. And I was there in the year two thousand. It came when Beatles won. Came out now. I know it's a complete and utter cop out to say uh, Beatles' greatest hits is like what, what's your favorite <laughs> album? It's the Beatles' greatest hits. But for me, that album it reminds me of the time I worked in, in a record shop. It reminds me of like my first my first job, and the actual album cover just a big red with a big yellowy one on the front. It's a very iconic style and look. Yeah, I remember that album coming out really fondly because um, this was around the time when the Beatles were still ever so slightly old-fashioned. And I think that album, you know, the album with a big yellow number one on the front, getting and then staying at number one, sort of proved, no, there is nothing old-fashioned. There is nothing sort of fusty about liking the Beatles. They're still very much loved by everyone. Mm. And, and this wasn't that long after Beatles Anthology either as well. Yeah, I think Anthology was the start of it. And then, you know, the big yellow number one was, you know, when it finally became official. Yes, everyone really boringly likes the Beatles. And it's hard to remember that a time before then, you know, Radio 1 used to refuse to play the Beatles mm. on account of they were far too, you know, nobody likes them anymore. You do, you, you'd have but to that wait doesn't to, seem to be the case still. Yeah, you'd have to wait for something like the Golden Hour for them to play it and when they did those <laughs> yeah. sort of things. Um, so then, in terms of comedy, what was your comedy influence? I've got a similarly really dull and, uh, you know... <laughs> Uh, uninteresting answer, which is the the Simpsons and Monty Python. They are the, they are fun and ice cream in terms of comedy influences. But I do get people saying when they they leave comments on my videos on YouTube and they say this guy is obviously such a massive Python head. What with the animation style and the you know the jokes and the silliness, like he's clearly a Python fan. And and they're right. They they are an enormous influence on me. And it's such a wonderful thing every time you notice. Um, times that the Beatles and Python have crossed paths where they're basically, you know, they are the comedy and music equivalent of each other. Yeah, and there's a big difference between uh, paying homage and being influenced by someone's comedy compared to, oh, I'm just going to steal that person's joke. Yeah, there were some people saying, why did you copy your animation style from Terry Gilliam? And the answer to that is, I actually, I'm not trying to look like Terry Gilliam. It's just that he and I have got the same limitations where I can't do proper animation. I've just got to use cutouts and move them around the screen. And in order for that to, you know, for it to be effective, I've got to make them move very quickly across the screen. And it's got to be sort of very sharp and violent. And I've learned the long way around. Oh, that's why Terry Gilliam has that particular style. Mm. So I've not copied him, but I've ended up doing a very similar type of thing to what he does. Yeah. If I may say, that some songs like the the... London Underground song, um, and more recently in the uh, London Unfinished videos with the uh, all the council logos being done kind of to a rhythm, um, it's very similar to Tom oh, Lehrer. Yeah. I have heard I've heard that from a few people that they think I'm uh, must have been inspired by Tom Lehrer, and uh, yeah, I suppose I am because when I came up with the the song for the the list of every tube station. Um, 
I was trying to copy the likes of Tom Lehrer's Periodic Table of the Elements song, the song from Animaniacs, which is a list of every country in the world. Mitch mm-hmm. Ben did a song, which is a list of every BBC TV and radio show. And it all goes back to Tom Lehrer. He basically was, as far as I know, the earliest example of one of those list songs that mm. you now get loads of. I'm so, I'm so glad you mentioned the Animaniacs one, because that it is, it's one of those comedy kind of linchpins that people don't, even remember or they don't know about and you can't go you don't know the animaniacs the 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 country song it's just a well yeah because the animaniacs sort of i mean it's made a comeback now they're actually they're making new episodes for the first time in 25 years but for the longest time the animaniacs really was forgotten about it wasn't being re-shown anywhere you had to remember it you had to sort of search youtube to find it Hmm. and it's just wonderful and it's one of those shows where they never talked down to their audience it was always most of the references that were squeezed into the Animaniacs were about Hollywood actors from the 30s and 40s, and that's mm. one of the reasons I loved it because it was so weird. Yeah, it's one of yeah, the, it's when a you fantastic re-watch, show. When you rewatch it, you realise I shouldn't, I shouldn't have understood that when I was 10. <laughs> yeah, there's some of it's filth. Yeah, have you seen? There's a clip doing the rounds of a joke that went right over our tiny heads about um, uh, fingerprints. Oh yes, I have. Oh yes, I have heard that one. I have seen that. Yeah. <laughs> and he got raise his eyebrows. Well, there's another one which yeah. I, I think it was. It's on the soundtrack. It's because it's one of those, one of those things that I once had. The sort of the Animaniacs sings uh, soundtracks, and uh, it's got. Uh, they list all the planets in the universe, and they said you missed out Uranus, and they say good good night everybody, and it's a, like a, <laughs> it's a very obvious joke to do, but for a, for a, well, it's effectively a kids animation show to do it. It's almost bordering on sort of Family Guy sort of territory. Yeah, it's filth a lot of it. And someone's done a compilation on YouTube of every time Yakko looks at the camera and says, Good night, everybody! Which, you know, by definition, are the moments that shouldn't have been in there. Yeah. Um, and even the way they acknowledge that they've made a joke, the fact that he says, Good night, everybody, like a club comedian. Like, yeah. You wouldn't have put that in a kid's show on purpose. I love it. No. Uh, and so I know that you've done quite a few uh, Edinburgh Fringe shows. I did something like 10 in a row, I think. It's been quite a while now. Mm. But um, yeah, I, I used to uh, really love doing the fringe, and I really miss it quite a lot. What, one of the things I've asked some of the other guests we've had before has been what what makes the fringe so special. One of the most amazing things about the fringe is that no matter what stage of your career you're at, there's always something there that makes it worthwhile. So you know whether you are a absolutely brand spanking new performer looking for your first audience, or Michael McIntyre looking for nine and a half million pounds, there is a reason for going to Edinburgh. And I always think back to my days doing Edinburgh on a regular basis and think about it as if it was like a like a big campus mm. where you walk around and, you know, you know everyone and your mates are there and you're all doing what you love for such an intense month. The thing that always gets me, I'd come home from Edinburgh and then one of my friends from the real world who doesn't know Edinburgh very well or doesn't even know what the Edinburgh Festival is, they'll say, how was your Edinburgh? How was your festival? What did you do? And the answer to that is always, well, I mean, it depends which bit you mean, because it went on for a whole month and it felt like five years worth of things happening to me, you know, every single time. Yeah. There's this phenomenon that, um, I don't know if you find it the same when you're up there, but you come back to, in my case, London at the end of the fringe. And on the 1st of September, you look at the news for the first time in a month and you realize you haven't had time to concentrate on what's going on outside the little bubble of Edinburgh because it's just so all consuming. Yeah. It, uh, the longest I've ever been there has been, uh, I think about I've done a week. I've done a whole week there, and it's yeah, it, it's just kind of like it's like comedy band camp. It's just it's like everyone's here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, um, 
There was one time I went to Edinburgh um, when it wasn't the festival. I was visiting the city in October, and I can't quite remember why, but it's one of the strangest places. Because if you go to the Fringe every year, like I did, and you, you start thinking that you know the city well, you realize when you go there in October that actually you don't. Because hmm. when you go to Bristow Square, expecting there to be throngs of people, massive crowds and a great big upside-down purple inflatable cow, when it's not there, it feels really ghostly. Hmm. And the weirdest thing is, it's not just the absence of the cow, there's the absence of any sense that this is an actual square at all because about three quarters of it is a skate park and the other three quarters of it is just some pavement it's incredible how much they managed to squeeze the fringe in to a city which gets on with its life for 11 other months of the year when we're not there yeah probably the weirdest one is the presence um pleasance courtyard which is a car park <laughs> that gets me because Pleasance is one of, is one of my favourite places to go. It's just because just it's got that the little tables and chairs, and you can just hang out until goodness what you know, like we're nearly like one in the morning, and it's just people. Oh, oh, oh look, there's so and so, and there's a so and so from that show, and it's just I, I was to buy Sylvester McCoy at one point at the bar, and I was like, mm-hmm. this place is brilliant. <laughs> yeah, and then go there in October. It's it's literally unrecognisable. Mm. But you can't even tell where the, you know, it looks like the, the set where they filmed the Pleasance Courtyard. Yeah. You have to look really every to notice. Oh, yeah, I, su- I suppose it is the same pavement, sort of. Yeah, and George Square is just, it's just a university square. It's just four very grey buildings and a bit of green in the middle. And and you're right about the, the about a vibe and an energy. It's, it's, it's always a bit weird to say, oh, there's a great vibe and great energy somewhere. And you think, yeah, are you just being spiritual about it? Like, no, it's there isn't there's something in the air at Edinburgh that makes people go, just get just just this kind of comedy this, I don't I, I don't know what to, how to describe it sort of correctly. I think that's the smell of the brewery. It's a, it's got a sort <laughs> yeah. of metallic smell. You know, as soon as you get the first whiff of it when you get up mm. there at the end of July, like, oh yeah, we're back in Edinburgh. There's that smell. And so many people I really from London. missed the place. I've not been in quite some time. Yeah, and having there been so many people from London going up there, it's like you're not used to... What is that smell? Oh, it's fresh air. That's what that is. That's fresh air. <laughs> and the tap water's so mm. nice. It is. It's true. Really, really, I often really wonder if, if Edinburgh had to, for some reason, go fallow for a year, like Glastonbury does, and I wonder, is there any other city in Britain that could host the, the Fringe Festival? Um, and, you know, lots of other places could cope with it perfectly well. But then Edinburgh is, lest we forget, apart from the actual festival that goes on, it's a really nice city. And I really mm. enjoy all the views you get. The fact that no matter which street you're on, you're bound to have this spectacular view going over the, you know, the volcanoes where Edinburgh city centre is. Yeah. Um, so heading back briefly onto comedy and songwriting, um, was there like a moment when you realised that... You're doing these songs, and then the comedy lyrics come in, and went like, how how did you transition from, I suppose, doing just songs to doing comedy songs? Well, it used to be that I was writing songs that I thought passed for folk music rather than you know comedy songs or stand up comedy. And the way I used to perform when I first started at uni was I'd be sat on a stool, and I wouldn't really do much talking in between the songs at all. It would basically just be song, 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 thank you, goodbye. Um, But then what slowly, gradually happened is that I realized my act was a lot closer to stand-up comedy than it was to music, which led to me doing things like talking about myself a little bit between the songs and physically standing up, which, you know, has a very different feel to when you're sat down to play songs. Um, And I guess it would have been one of those times I was at the Edinburgh Fringe and I had to write the bits that go between the songs, which to this day I'm still very uncomfortable with you know i'm at my happiest when i'm singing a song that i wrote months ago rather than having to talk to the audience um i guess it was when i was writing those bits in between for the first time that i realized 
I, th- I think I'm a comedian now. Hmm. <laughs> so, and then you've now started doing things like uh, Map Men, which we go for for a while, and also London Unfinished, um, and they really blend the lines of comedy and information video. When you're when you're putting them together, what's is that? I don't know. I, I, can, I can I can see the elements of Monty Python in there, but when how do you know when to go from? Uh, say, oh, this is too much. This is too much information. We need a joke in here, or this is too jokey. We need to kind of bring it back. Well, it's interesting you say that because I've always thought it's very important that you know those two elements, you know, it being interesting and it being funny. I don't mm. think those things are at war, and I don't think it's one or the other. And I don't think that the funnier you make something, then the less true or the less interesting it is. I always think it's very important that the jokes in the show are there not to fight the facts, but to help the facts that, you know, you actually will, you're more likely to learn something and you're more likely to remember it and be interested in what happens next if the jokes are there to serve the story. Um, and I, I, I think it's a lot of fun trying to make it both as factual and interesting as possible, where you arrange the facts as if you're telling a compelling story where there's buts and therefores, goodies and baddies, to have both that and to make it as funny as possible, as silly as possible. And the way around I prefer to do it is I get the structure as good as I can for whatever story I'm trying to tell in this video. And then once the structure is absolutely bulletproof, you can then make it as absolutely absurd and as full of stupid jokes as you like. Um, Something that's influenced me a lot in this is shooting stars. Mm-hmm. Uh, Reason Mortimer, because what they've done is they've come up with this format, which is unmistakably a quiz show. There are questions, there are answers, there are teams, you know, you know exactly what's going on. And because it's a format that we're so familiar with, they are able to make the jokes absolutely batshit. And it's this amazing uh, combination of the two that I think makes Shooting Stars work so well. And I'm seems a bit pretentious to compare myself to that. But that's what I'm trying to do with my documentaries about these really boring topics such as the creation of the 32 London boroughs. I think as long as the um, story is well enough arranged, I can put in whatever really silly jokes I'm in the mood for that week. What's it, what do you think of those educational videos and being silly with that that information? What do you think, what it to you has been a joke too, not a joke too far, but a joke too silly? Yeah. <laughs> um... Well, there's one joke that I put in that I'm actually qu- I'm quite proud of, but it's sort of it's probably a bit distracting because I was talking about something quite serious, which was the fact that the cycle lanes in London were built to a poor standard, resulting in you know loss of life. And the way I told that story was to have me sat at my laptop whilst looking at the camera, and then on my laptop screen it cuts to the next scene, which is myself, and then the me sat at the computer desk and then reacts by screaming. And then the me on the laptop reacts by screaming back. And I'm very proud of the joke because it's very silly and makes no sense. Mm. But it does kind of, it sort of, it distracts from what was probably a more important and more sinister part of the story I was telling. But with very few exceptions, I think I am pleased at the fact that I'm able to get across the information that's necessary in the documentaries. And I'm also able to um, exercise my uh, Python fandom. I think there's also an element of like the Simpsons of just of uh, sort of screaming and then someone else screaming just because it's it's a very Simpson kind of thing to do. But I think Simpsons themselves are very heavily inspired by Monty Python as well. They are massively, and also South Park is very influenced by Monty Python. And you know, once you're aware of what it is to look out for, you can see the similarities. There's a great example. There was a very obscure um, Python sketch which Trey and Matt from South Park have talked about quite a lot. It's called Confuse a Cat. 
it's not very well remembered as a Python sketch because it's not one of their best, but mm. there's a device in there. Basically, the idea is, I think it's Michael Palin, one of them um, is dressed as an old woman and says, oh dear, my pet cat has just got no, uh, no enthusiasm for life anymore. He just sits and stares and does nothing. And then, oh yeah, that's right. Then Michael Palin comes along saying that he runs this business called Confuse a Cat. And their job is to put on a, a show to set up a stage and put a little show in the garden for the cat. And we are then treated to this show, which doesn't make any sense at all, and is made mostly of jump cuts. And then there's these occasional cutaways to the cat's reaction. And the cat, by the way, as you might expect, does absolutely nothing. Hmm. And yet, this is one of the cleverest and funniest things Python have done, because you're imagining what's going through the cat's head by the cat not doing anything. Now, Trey and Matt mentioned this. And it turns out they use that device in South Park where you show the reaction of someone watching something batshit and their face doesn't move at all. Yeah. They use that all the time. Yeah. And it's so funny and it's so effective. Yeah. To think about the episode like in really early on in season one where Mr. Garrison gets a nose job and he comes in one day and he looks like David Hasselhoff and he starts doing his dance. You then cut to the kids in the class reacting. Now, a lesser series would have had them looking confused or laughing, but in South Park, totally blank faces, and you have to imagine how they feel about it, and it's so funny. It's brilliant. Oh, that 100-mile that stare, 100-yard stare, 100-mile yeah. stare, yeah. I mean, you get a lot of Homer, Homer doing a lot of 100-yard stares. Like, yeah, whatever, okay. And it does, it does go on. So going back into songwriting, what are there any kind of songs that have taken longer than you expected to write? Or even... Yeah, a, some of them I... Well, it depends. I mean, every every piece of string is of different thickness, but um, it depends. There are some songs where I wrote them when I was a student, the night before an exam, and it took me all of 20 minutes. And then there are some songs that I was working on for years, making little changes here and there. Hmm. Um, I guess it depends on how difficult the task I set myself is or how much I care about the end result. But there, it's never really been the same process for two songs. Hmm. So uh, we get now get to a bit now, which I haven't really formulated properly. Uh, it's called... It's called oh, it's called Chain Reaction. It's a question from a previous guest, basically. Ah. Uh, and so the previous guest on this episode was Lauren Patterson. Um, so here's Lauren's question for you. What is the one bit of stand-up you've seen another comic perform that you wish you'd got there first and done it? Oh, that's an excellent question. It's making me sad because it's making me realise just how long it's been since I've actually been to a gig and watched some stand-up. Mm. Um, uh, if I don't have an answer off the top of my head immediately for a piece of stand, I tell you why. I tell you why that's hard for me to answer because um, I don't really tend to do. Um, so-called normal so-called stand-up it's actually very rare that i stand on the stage holding a microphone and do some talking like the vast majority of what i perform on stage is um uh songs so i guess in my case is there a piece of musical comedy that i'm sort of really jealous i hadn't thought of myself um i would say the entire output of tim minchin because uh, he's one of the people that encouraged me to get into writing and doing musical comedy. He's absolutely fantastic, sort of too clever for his own good. So, yeah, the entire output of Tim Minchin would be my answer. Okay. If that answer's allowed. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm evolving it you into... You cut down the bit at the beginning when I spent <laughs> ages trying to think. It's all good, it's all good. Uh, so what are you working on next? Apart from some more Matt Men. Right now, 
Uh, right now I'm working on Mat Men, which we perhaps ill-advisedly filmed a whopping seven episodes in one go, mm -hmm. uh, which means that the edit job is going to take the best part of a year. So um, not to spoil the illusion, but the fact that every month uh, Mark and I, the co-presenters, are back in the same room in the same clothes, we, we filmed it all in an afternoon. However, all of the sketches and all of the bits that go in between, all the graphics and stuff, takes a very, very long time to edit. Mm. And um, Mark and I worked out that the... The total running time for this latest series of Mat Men, if you include all of the adverts that go at the end that we make for YouTube, um, is an hour and 30 minutes, which means we basically made a feature film. <laughs> so it makes me feel a bit better about how long it takes to, to edit and the fact that we're trying to slowly trickle the episodes out one month apart each time. Um, yeah, it's keeping me busy right now. Awesome. And, and if you want to catch up with any of the videos, they're available on YouTube now. Uh, just by simply oh, searching yes, like J Foreman. I'll add all the stuff. Uh, all the stuff's are in the links in the description to the episode as well. Uh, and so finally, what have you learnt? I have learnt, um, given the conversation we've just had, just how much I love and have been missing the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Um, because I know that I'll be missing it this year when August comes around and, you know, yet again, I'm not there, but it's, it's such a huge part of my life and career and it's such a fun place to be. Um, but that's what I take away from this, that, um, I bloody love the Edinburgh Fringe. That, that's what I've learned. Jay Foreman, thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs>